through Jesus and then is making that known and making that real uh, through, the, through the church. And I can't think of too many relationships that need to experience more of God's reconciling work than marriages. Last week, Dana walked us through... Uh, yes. I won't even do the impression, but I know there's some of you that do it very well. You can entertain us after uh, with a little bit of love and marriage. Um, last week, Dana walked us through Ephesians, this passage. We're going to look at a smaller bit of it today. She walked us through Ephesians 5:21 into chapter 6, exploring how this big plan of God to reconcile all things to himself, how it applied very directly to the three main relationships which define the everyday lives of Christian people in the first century kind of Greek and Roman world. And those three main relationships were between the husband and the wife, between children and their fathers, parents, you could extend it, but fathers, and then between masters and slaves. And those kind of formed the the household uh, relationships. And today, we're going to just dig a bit deeper into just the section on marriage, which is found in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 21 to 33. And maybe you have your booklets. It's going to be the first section of of last week's uh, portion. Um, And you can find it on your phones. And I don't know if, if we have extra booklets today. Do we? It's okay. You'll hear it. You'll hear it read. That's fine. But this is one of the three special topics we did this year. So what we did is we went through Ephesians. There was sometimes there was things that came up and we took a Sunday to address them in particular. And last week, as Dana laid out kind of the whole section, it obviously highlighted a number of different things, but it highlighted marriage. And so we wanted to come back to that and, and sort of focus a special Sunday on the subject of, of, of marriage. Marriage, the reality is marriage sits at the center of much of our lives, either our own marriages or the marriages of friends around us or family members or parents or children. These marriages can be a source of tremendous comfort and joy in life, but as we know, these marriages also can be the cause of much trauma and much hurt in our lives as well. And today I want to focus on some pretty practical teaching on marriage, but I, I, I want to first acknowledge a couple things before we go there. The first is the reality that against all of God's intentions, some of you or maybe some of your family members have experienced abuse inside of marriage. And marriage has been something that's hurt you or hurt loved ones of yours terribly. And I want to acknowledge that as we go in today. For some of you, even just having a healthy marriage has been very elusive. That you've been in a marriage that, well, frankly, is characterized by lack of communication, by hard feelings, and you sort of still live together, but it's not healthy. That's been elusive. You've wondered if it really is worth it. Others of us, marriage has been elusive. We've maybe really wanted to get married, but for whatever reason, that hasn't happened for us. And so even a conversation about marriage can sometimes evoke feelings of loneliness or feelings of, of disappointment. And I want to be able to acknowledge that. We've talked at other times, and we will talk again in the future, about God's plan for singleness and the high call of being single in the family of God and in the church and, and how significant that is. But I want to also acknowledge that sometimes that can be painful. For those of us who've experienced divorce, maybe because um, the person you were with betrayed you, maybe because of something you did, maybe because of just a whole mess of things. And as a result, your hopes for what had been a life of love with this person had been dashed. And and you look back on on that marriage 
uh, with, with, a, with a sense of disappointment or, or hurt. And for many of you, I know, you've lived in households where your parents were either in the process of an ugly divorce or, or there was a, a marriage that's fraught with much, much difficulty. And, and so even that whole subject of pain uh, or marriage as it comes up can evoke a lot of pain. I just want to acknowledge that at the outset. I want to tell each and every one of you that that, 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 that wasn't God's plan for marriage. That wasn't God's intention for it. And, and that hurt that you experienced, that God hurt with you in that. And he hurts for you in that. And he longs for you to experience healing and restoration, even in those places where you experienced wounding. The hurt and the pain of this world, we've been exploring it throughout this series, is being healed in Jesus. And God's plan to reconcile all things to himself, it includes the most painful parts of your story. It might be hard to believe sometimes, but it really is true. And today, as I speak specifically on marriage, I do that just acknowledging that this whole conversation can evoke a lot of different feelings. But whether we're in a marriage or not, whether we've seen or enjoyed or even do enjoy a healthy marriage, or whether we're kind of in a mediocre one or even in a failing one, every one of us, I believe, want to see marriages more healthy. We want to see the mar- our own marriages, the marriages of people around us, the marriages of people in our family and our friendship circles. We want to see those marriages more life-giving, where men and women in these marriages are, are experiencing the love of Jesus in their lives, or are demonstrating that love in and through their marriage. That's what we want. We actually know that it's good for everybody. It's good for friends. It's good for family. It's good for the church when, when marriages are actually doing better. Regardless of whether we ourselves are single or married or divorced or somewhere in between, a healthy, flourishing marriage gives life to all who are in relationships with them and extends and ripples out. And we as a church, we want to see marriages healed. We want to see marriages restored and growing and life-giving. Marriages that not only enhance the lives of those who are perhaps in the marriage relationship, but, but also further the plan of God to bring reconciliation and bring healing Throughout the world that he loves. Showing the world what Jesus actually looks like in this most precious and intimate relationship. So we're diving into Ephesians 5 if you want to turn there. Dana taught us beautifully last week. She led us really well through the passage and really helped uh, explore quite a bit of the cultural background. And I really highly recommend if you missed that to go back and listen to that. It's online. Um, But I'll repeat a little bit of it, but I'm not going to explain all of that. So there's some of the cultural stuff you're wanting to cry foul about. Go back and listen or explore it a bit further. I'm going to try to try to move along through here and keep this message, you know, under an hour. Yeah. Way under an hour. <clears throat> Verse 21 starts with this. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's the NRSV, which we printed in our booklet. I am much more familiar with the NIV, so I'm going to slip today and constantly say the word submit instead of be subject because that's the one I'm more familiar with. The NIV says the same thing, essentially submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the overarching statement. All that comes after this springs from a reverence for Christ. All healthy relationships, this is what Paul's been teaching, but today as we apply it directly, all healthy marriages begin not as an expression of loving reverence for the other person. They're actually sourced by a loving reverence 
for Jesus himself. As we heard last week, verse 21 is the overarching verse that the Apostle Paul then takes and applies to each person's life situation, very different life situations as it would have been in that day. So whether they were a master or a slave or a child or a father or husband or wife, they're each called to submit or to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's an astonishing teaching. And it's rooted in what Jesus did on the cross. And it absolutely revolutionized the way that people related to one another who were now part of this one new humanity that Jesus had created on the cross, who were part of the church. It was revolutionizing those relationships, but it was also very hard. Reverence for Christ is the only way that we are able to truly submit, to truly be subject to one another in the way that God desires us to. Why? Because if my submission to you is dependent upon my reverence for you, my admiration for how amazing you are, if your reverence for me is rooted in just how excellent my character is or how I'm always acting out of great concern for me, for you, and never for myself, if that's what our reverence is based on, how long do you think it's going to last? Not very long, right? In marriage, this challenge for the husband and the wife to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ front loads the need for us to be in a vibrant, life-giving, yielded relationship of love and respect and honor with Jesus himself. It reminds us of everything we've already covered in Ephesians, of how the Father has loved us and how the Son has rescued us and how we've been adopted into the Father's family and how Jesus died on the cross to make us one with Him and also one with each other and and, and how deep and how wide and how high and how long is this love of Jesus for us. That's what it takes us to, that Jesus is the one who's actually captured our hearts and our minds and our wills and our imagination, that Jesus, the living God, the one with whom we stand, the one in whom we live, this amazing, courageous, brilliant, strong, passionate man, this Jesus, he's the one who fills our lives with his goodness and his power, and we love him with everything that we have. We bow to him, we we honor him, we worship him with our lives, and especially as we gather as his people, we give everything of ourselves to him because he has given everything of himself to us. That's where our reverence lies. We revere Jesus. Because we revere Jesus, we can submit to each other. You see, if our submission to one another was somehow dependent upon our reverence for each other, it wouldn't last. Some It might last longer than others, but really, it wouldn't last. But if our submission to one another is rooted in our reverence for Christ, then we're able to lay down our lives for each other. We're able to love each other sacrificially. We're able to go that extra mile. We're able to push through the tremendous conflict. We're able to fight for each other, even with each other, in our marriages. So I want to make this practical, that we acknowledge. Now, I understand that some of us are not yet following Jesus. I get that. Love you. Thrilled that you're here. Thrilled that you decide that the Erickson Covenant Church is a safe place for you to explore faith. We are all about that. And as you come to know who Jesus is, I, I think you will come. To, you will grow in reverence. You will grow in respect. You'll, you'll begin to see more and more of how amazing he is. But for those of us who've said, 
we're a follower of Jesus. My challenge to us is that we actually incorporate this reverence for Jesus into our lives, that we spend time daily reverencing him, reflecting on his goodness, reflecting on how amazing he is, showing him honor and, and giving her, you know, our gratitude to him as we acknowledge all that he's done for us and all that he's doing for us and how amazing he is that we root our lives, all of our relationships, but certainly our marriage relationships, in the fact that we reverence Christ. And my challenge is that we would do that as part of our daily lives, that we would make reverencing Christ, giving him honor, giving him praise, speaking words of thanksgiving to him, central to who we are. We do that personally, but we also do that as a church. And one of the, one of the greatest ways we do that is, of course, whenever we gather to worship, but especially when we gather around the table, when we gather around the bread and the juice to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. And so today, before I even go on, I do have more to say about marriage. We want to stop right here and recognize that we as the church want to stand as people who reverence Christ. And communion, the Lord's table, is one of the most central ways that that followers of Jesus have reverenced Christ whenever they gather, down through the centuries. And so before we even go any further in the message today, we're going to participate in communion together. I'm going to invite the team, music team to come back up and those who are serving to join me at the front. And what we're going to do is I'll lead you very briefly through an invitation to the table. There'll be three um, stations, and we practice intention here right now, and you take the bread and you just dip it in the juice and, and then participate that way. There'll be a central, um, what, what's the word, station, and there'll be one at each side. And so the idea is you come up the center row and then just go to the, clo- go to the one that's open, Okay. Just go, go to whichever one that's open, and it'll flow fairly, fairly well, and then just return to your seats around the outside. Um, the bread is all gluten-free. Uh, I've heard it doesn't soak the juice up quite as well. So you want to cup it and catch the drip. Get it all. And uh, what a beautiful way that we reverence Christ. You know, he, on the night he, he was betrayed, he's the one who took bread, sitting with his best of friends, the people, the men that he had poured his life out to. And he said, take this bread and eat it in remembrance of me. This is what we're doing today. We're reverencing Christ. We're saying, thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself for me, for us, for your church. And then after, the, after supper, he also took the cup. And he said, drink it as a sign of my new covenant, the new covenant I'm making with you. Drink it. And as Often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's the way that we reverence Christ in our hearts, and it's also the way that we show him reverence by proclaiming him to the world. This is an open table. You are all invited to come. But as you come, know that you're coming to say thank you to Jesus for all that he has done for you as you yield your life him and so if you're not in that spot yet it's okay to sit in your seat and reflect about it that's fine but all of us together can acknowledge who jesus is and show him reverence as we participate together in communion let's pray jesus we are thankful for your gift of life to us and as we come today to the table as your people we honor you we revere you jesus we love you 
We are so thankful for all that you've done for us and the gifts you've given to us. And as we come today, we recognize that everything else in life, all of our relationships, and particularly today as we explore the marriage relationship, all of that is sourced by you, the one that we revere. So we come today in humility and gratitude because of who you are and what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. Those who are serving can join me at the table. Back up and leading us in communion. Everything begins with reverence for Christ. Now as we heard last week, Paul then goes on to apply this submission to one another, being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ to the fundamental relationships in the society of of that day. And he starts with the husband and the wife, uh, which is where we're going to focus today. What does it mean for a Jesus-revering husband and a Jesus-revering wife to submit to one another? First, Paul speaks to the wife in the marriage relationship. He says, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Now, Dana covered a lot of the cultural stuff last week that would have sat behind this, so I'm just going to summarize and maybe add a couple things. First, the word be subject or, or submit, depending on your translation, is not there in the original text. Okay? Might be surprising to you. What do I mean? So the original text would read like this. Wives to your husbands. So what it means is it's picking up on the command from the previous verse to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What it does, and the reason why I'm making a big deal of this, is it underscores the fact that what comes next is an application of what Paul has been saying more generically about submitting to one another in the church, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some older translations made a huge mistake, really some, yeah, translations, I guess, made a huge mistake by placing a a subject heading. You know how Bibles put those subject headings in there to kind of help? They weren't part of the original text either. And to kind of help us with kind of the sections and stuff. Well, some older translations would put the subject heading after verse 21 and before verse 22, as though verse 21, submit to one another reverence to Christ, was like the end of a section. And now Paul goes over here and now he's going to talk about marriage as though it's a brand new section. And because they supply the word that's not there, wives submit, people would pick up there and begin to talk about marriage somehow disconnected from the overall command that we are all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, the absence of this word is just further proof of of that. So that's, that's important. Second, While there were lots of contemporary writers addressing these family relationships in Paul's day, none of them ever addressed the wife directly. Dana mentioned this last week. They never also also would never address the child or, or the slave directly. Instead, they would speak to the, in this case, the husband about how they should be making their wife submit. Right? They'd give him instructions as to how he should be managing the different relationships in his family, whether it was to the child or whatever, slave. But but in in this case, he he would be telling the guy, this is how you get her to X, Y, and Z. 
And while that's super easy for us to miss because of where we sit culturally, directly addressing the wives is an example of how the good news of Jesus has changed the way that people would relate to each other. That now in the church, now in this one new humanity that Jesus has formed, people are now relating to one another as people who are one in Christ, regardless of of, of gender or race or economic status. They've been addressed directly and they're given dignity by Jesus himself. Third, in terms of the wife, what Paul tells her to do, submit to her husband and everything, isn't much different than what she already had to do which was submit to her husband. That's everything in the culture reinforced that. But the difference in this case is huge. Now she's able to submit to her husband, not because he's such a stand-up guy, nor because if you don't, he'll beat you, which they would uh, back then, Um, but now because she's loved by Jesus. She's been made one in Christ. She's been redeemed. She's been given God's Holy Spirit to live in her. Now she's part of God's family, and she's been elevated to equal status with men in Christ. Now she's given a new reason which can strengthen her core identity and her daily action. She's now able to submit to her husband out of reverence for Christ as an expression of her love and her following of Jesus. And this gives her tremendous dignity. In this very, very patriarchal society, submitting, you know, actually doing what the guy told you to do in in, in this case, um, wasn't an option for this woman but how she could submit what she was thinking of as she did that what it was what was sourcing her submission could be very different now she could submit out of reverence for christ now the sad truth is that there have been men in history who've used this scripture to enforce domination over women they've used it to to prop up subjugation, even to the point, unbelievably, but true, to the point of of domestic violence, of sexual exploitation. There have been Christians, pastors, churches, who've been known to prop up oppressive and demeaning and violent situations because they've interpreted these verses as some sort of a carte blanche permission for men to subjugate Women. One of the greatest challenges of women who are in domestic, violent, domestically violent situations of leaving that husband, which she needs to do, has been Christians who have said, ah, oh, but you're supposed to submit. That's tragic. That's a misinterpretation of these verses. It's awful. And it's counter to the heart of God. And to anyone who's ever been hurt or neglected or oppressed, And somehow this scripture has been drawn in to support that. I want you to know that that is not the heart of Jesus. That's not the teaching of Jesus. That's not the heart of the Father for you. Down through history sometimes, Paul himself has been given a bad rap as a misogynist or whatever. That is not the heart of Paul. That is not what's going on here. There was never the intention of God for marriage. Rather, what Jesus had done in his life on the cross... And now in the church, all that was designed to lift women up. And if you need any proof of this, we're just going to keep reading in the text. You see, as far as I can see, what Paul says to the women at this point, it is powerful. 
But it's, it's fairly straightforward. Wives, as very powerless in this society, were often married to men much older than them. They, they often themselves did not have a lot of education or, or maybe even any experience outside of the, the very small, cloistered sort of household life that they were part of. And for them, submitting was not really an option. They have to submit. But, but Paul helps, helps them understand how they submit you know, can, can be amazing, it can be different, and, and, and they have control over that. Paul gives that to them. But now he turns to the man. Now he turns to the husband, the guy with all the power in his home and propped up by the government. And what he says next is the real cultural kicker. He calls the man to something so radical, so sacrificial, so completely Jesus, and so anti-domination that it makes me suck my breath in every time I think about the love of Jesus for people, and particularly people who were in such a disadvantaged position, a position where they were so weak and they were so vulnerable and they were so threatened and they often were so abused, such as potentially these wives. The question is, how should husbands submit to their wives out of reverence for Christ? Well, here's how. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does submission look like? Just right off the bat. It means sacrificial love. And then he goes on. And he talks a lot about the relationship of Jesus with the church. Got to piece it all together here. He goes on in verse 26. In order to make her holy, he's talking about the church, by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Paul does this all the time. If he can wax eloquent about the amazingness of the church and Jesus, he will. And he does it all through this section. It's kind of classic. Then he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes it and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. See how he does that? Can't hold himself back. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And I'm applying it to Christ in the church. And at the end, each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. That's kind of his wrap-up. You know, this is so countercultural. This is so radically Jesus-oriented. Do you know that no one in Paul's day... I know, we, we, just, we just do not hear this. We hear husbands love your wives like, well, yeah, duh. Because we're kind of post-romantic, and we all grew up in love stories. But... No one in Paul's day ever told men that one of their responsibilities to their wives was to love them. Do you know that? Love, love, what? Love has nothing to do with it. Having good kids does. Having, having, a, having a sort of a proper view in, in light of the culture, that matters. And so, so the people of that day, the writers, social philosophers and whatnot, they would tell the men um, that they needed to, you know, respect their wives. Some of the gentler ones would say be kind to her and, and, and you know, things like that, care for them. But no one ever said, love them. There was never a requirement. What's that? Well, love? What's love got to do with it? Right? But Jesus, he commands men to submit to their wives out of reverence for him by sacrificially laying down their lives for her in love. Just as Christ had willingly given up his life for the church because he loved us. You see the reverence for Christ connection here? 
It's only a husband who stands in true awe and respect and reverence for what Christ has done for him, what Christ has done for his people, what Christ did for his enemies, for what he did for all of us who were dead in our transgressions and sins. It's only a husband has been so captured by the love of Jesus for his bride, the church that he'll be then able to model that kind of sacrificial love, that kind of laying down your life love for his own bride. At what point, I ask you, did Jesus ever use his power to coerce or to manipulate or to bully or to force people into submission? Never! Is there ever a case when a man can and should use his power To override his wife in favor of his own needs. Never. The most challenging words Paul issues in his day regarding submission in marriage is actually to the man. By far and away, the most stunning, countercultural, game-changing teaching has nothing at all to do really with how the wife submits to her husband, but how a husband lays down his life for his wife. It completely undercuts any interpretation of male power over his wife. I'd love to have sat in the congregations that received this letter back then. I, lo- I would have loved to have sat there and heard it read. And as they got to this section of the household code, and they had all heard it before, they'd all heard it our whole lives, and their parents had heard it, and their grandparents had heard it. It was the fabric of their life. And all of a sudden, to hear The great Apostle Paul speaking directly to the wives, to the kids. And to see people begin to go, wow, we're being honored, we're being dignified. To see how the men in the room would have responded as the Holy Spirit was getting into their lives and reworking the very way they think. The the very way that they view other people as men with power in that society. uh, Beginning to have the gospel of Jesus Christ reframe the whole way they think of their own slaves. Wow! The way that they would rethink the way they think of their children and, of course, the way they would think of their wives. And to see the Holy Spirit at work in them, to see the changes that would have begun to happen, sometimes slowly, sometimes radically, that would have begun to happen in the, in the lives and in the households and the families and in the marriages as Jesus got a hold, as these men who were gripped by Jesus, who were captured by his love, began to work out the implications of that in the way they spoke to one another, in the way they directed their household affairs, in the way that they engaged with their wives. Wow, would have been incredible, hey? Well, guess what? still true today. I'm convinced that if we will take this command to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we would see dramatic growth and vibrant health come to our marriages. So let's talk really practically about that today. Based upon this challenge, from God's word to submit to one another in reverence for Christ, what does it mean for us to foster healthy, vibrant marriages? In his groundbreaking and decades-long research on what makes marriages flourish and, frankly, what makes them fail, Dr. John Gottman, I've read a few of his books now, he observes that all healthy marriages have two simple things in common. You ready for them? Two simple things. First, they're great friends. Wow. 
That's earth shattering. Backed up by tons of science. Second, <laughs> they're really good fighters. Those the two common things of a healthy marriage. They are great friends, great friendships, and man, can they fight well. I've read marriage books. I try to read one every year for the sake of my own marriage and, frankly, for the sake of yours. I have attended many seminars. I have been trying to work on my own marriage for 21 years now, and you can ask Tennille for an update on how that's going. I've tried to help many other couples, sometimes successfully and sometimes not, help save their own marriages. And I can tell you that this bears out. And so as I wrap up, I just want to suggest that these two realities being great friends and good fighters are actually a way that we can get some guidance as we figure out what it means to practically submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in our marriages. And if you're here today and you're still not sure about the whole reverence for Christ thing, let me just say, a little bit of advice you're going to receive right now, if you just took just that home and applied it to your marriage, you'd see results. Try it. Let me know how that goes. First, great friends. Let's talk about friendship. If you want your marriage to grow, you need to foster your friendship with each other. Do you think it's possible to think of fostering friendship as an expression of your submission to one another out of reverence for Christ? I actually think it is. Jesus himself said there's no greater love than laying down your life for a friend, and that's exactly what he's calling us to do, to live our, lay our lives down. You know, we always think of the dramatic ways, but in the ways that really matter, the daily interactions of life. This means making your friendship with each other a priority in your weekly routine. You know, one of the practical things we can do is making sure that we set aside time to be together, to discuss our week together, to discuss what's going on, just the mundane, normal things, but also some of the things that come up, some of the struggles, some of the hurts, some of the, some of the activities that are bothering you, whatever. Nikki and Scylla Lee, they're the creators of the Alpha Marriage Course. They advise couples to book what they call marriage time for, for couples every, every week. that you, you gather together, and maybe it's just over a coffee, maybe it's at a certain time in the evening, maybe it's a Sunday night, whatever. You intentionally connect with each other for no other purpose than to just talk about how things are going, in particular to talk about how your relationship is going and what's, what's happening in your lives. Because there are so many things that can crowd that out. Now, some of you might be in the twilight years of your life and you're loving retirement and you think, are you kidding? We do that every morning. We sip our lattes and we talk about the grandkids. We love you. And we need you to come take care of our kids so we can go out and do some of the same. Um, there are others, though. Man, weeks can go by, right? Months can go by and we realize, man, I have not spoken. Who are you? And you're not spending time with each other. We've got to prioritize time with each other and do that in very practical ways. And so I, I challenge you to schedule that this week. I challenge you to schedule the time to get together and maybe talk more about You know, I just want to say this is one of the things I've heard a number of people tell me. People that are in, maybe the twilight years of your life, hey, you, your grandkids are far away, but man, we got grandkids to spare around here. And if you'd like to hang out with some of them, it can be arranged. But also some of us who maybe, maybe we're not in a family unit. Maybe, maybe we are single. And the value and the, the awesomeness, actually, um, a number of my single friends have told me how great it is to be able to hang out with families, to be able to hang out with your kids. Do you realize there's amazing people in this, in this congregation who would hang out with your kids at least once? 
But I think there's enough of us to go around that you probably, if you strategically did it, you'd have a lot of date nights covered, but at least between now and Christmas, and then we'd have to try other strategy after that. But do you realize that's a gift to people who are single as well? People who are far away from their own grandkids, it's a gift to be able to connect with the family. And so we can help each other even in that. Again, that's one of the ways we can support one another, and in particular we can support marriages. We also, to foster friendships, we need to make new memories together. Sometimes our best memories are so far behind us that we've forgotten what they are. And the reality is friends, you know what do friends do? What do friends do? They hang, they hang out together, right? They do stuff. They like order pizza, watch a movie, go for a walk. And those are the kind of things, I know it sounds, that sounds abysmal, but you know, for some of you in your marriages, that would be great if you did that. It would be transformative if you did that. If you found a new place to go for a walk. If you actually explored some new areas, went, did something, go overnight somewhere, do some things, make some new memories together, do something crazy, you know, jump out of an airplane with a parachute or something. Make a memory you'll never forget. Another thing to foster friendship is to remember what your partner most enjoys. Two things I want to advise, of course, is many of us have heard the five love languages, and that's knowing what the love language of our spouse is, and also knowing what our own love language is. Some of us love gifts to be given. Some of us need words of affirmation. Some of us, it's, it, if, if there's no physical touch involved, there's no love involved. You understand what I'm saying? Some of us, we need, to, it's just, we need time spent with. And it doesn't matter how many gifts you're given. If the, the guy or, or the girl ain't spending any time with you, then it's bad. Like, it's not working. Whatever the love language is. I missed one of them. Oh, yes, acts of service, <laughs> which is the love language of my wife. And, and how, how did I forget? I'm sorry, Tanil. <laughs> it was revolutionary for me to understand, not very long ago, I'm ashamed to say, that much of, of, of what Tanil does for me is directly her expression of love for me and that helps me understand and be able to receive her love for me more as my love language is different. But figuring out what the love language is for your spouse enables you to love them and them and also receive their love. Also, another thing Gottman talks about is love maps, which sounds kind of weird, but all that is is that intimate knowledge of the person that you're with where you know them so well that you actually know what their favorite you know, meal is or the favorite paint color is or whether they would like that lamp or not. Or This really helps guys with any clothing shopping if you actually know what they like and what fits them because you do not want to come home with the wrong thing in that department. But knowing them intimately enough, each other, so you know their love map. You know what matters. And, and if you were to take you know, a family feud quiz or some marriage quiz, you would ace it because you know each other really well. That's because you've been fostering friendships. And, and if, if you realize, I don't know much about those things about my spouse, there's an opportunity for you to foster that, to, to grow in your understanding of who they are. All of this, I think, helps us reclaim something that they say, if this is missing in a marriage, the marriage is in trouble. And that is a sense of wonder and admiration for the other person. That marriages that have wonder and admiration still present in their lives, man, they can go through a lot of stuff. There are a lot of things wrong even. But if they still have a sense of wonder and admiration for each other, boy, they've got... They, but marriages that have lost that are in trouble. And so as we foster friendship with each other, as we really lean into that friendship that God has given us, we'll see wonder and admiration also return or be enhanced in our marriage. Now this sounds simple. Be good friends. But I'm telling you, it's probably one of the most important things you can do for your marriage. 
And considering how difficult it can actually be to rearrange our lives, to make time for this, to prioritize, despite all the things that can come in and resist our efforts to spend good, solid time with each other. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that pursuing friendship is itself and can be itself an act of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's the foundation of every healthy marriage out there. Second, you need to be good fighters. Everybody put up their fists. Come on. Marg, I can see you. No fists up. Come on. If you want to become more healthy in your marriage, you need to engage conflict with gentleness and respect. I think that submission to one another means that we fight for each other even as we fight with each other. We fight for each other, for our marriage, even as we fight with each other. And the reality is we've often interpreted submission as kind of a silence thing, as simply taking it on the chin every time. And even if we've not interpreted submission in sort of overtly domineering ways, we've allowed it to slip into a kind of acquiescent, never make a ripple, always kind of, you know, that kind of ideal. But that's not biblical submission at all. Being submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ shows us how we are to have conflict. And if we're to have healthy marriages, we must have conflict. But we must have that conflict in particular ways. Marriages where people are conflict avoidant are not healthy. In a marriage where a husband or a wife fails to be honest about what they're truly experiencing, about the hurt that's going on, about their disappointment, about expectations that have been missed, where one person is always giving in or another person is always getting their way is not a biblical marriage. It's not a Christ-honoring marriage. It's not a healthy marriage. Even if, listen carefully, even if it might look like that from the outside. It's not. Marriages where people are conflict avoidant or perhaps where people say we don't even have conflict signal that there's dishonesty in the relationship. Submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ means all the things that Paul has already been teaching us in this letter so far. I'll draw on just a few of them. It means speaking the truth in love. It means putting off falsehood. I'm just quoting from Ephesians here. It means not letting the sun go down while you are still angry, which might suggest you have to deal with the reason why you're angry with the person that tends to be sleeping next to you. It means not giving the devil a foothold. It it means not letting unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but rather using words to build one another up. It's about getting rid of all the bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and all the malice. It's about being kind and compassionate to one another and forgiving each other even as Christ has forgiven you. Healthy marriages have conflict. Some of them, you'll be pleased to find out, have lots of conflict. The presence of conflict is not the sign of an unhealthy marriage. Just as the absence of conflict is not the sign of a healthy one. What signals healthy marriage, marriages is how the couple has conflict. How they fight is key. You see, unhealthy marriages will often get caught in a trap which Gottman features as the four horsemen. Criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and what they call stonewalling, where one person, usually the guy, just shuts down and won't respond to anything else that's being said. 
in order to transform marriages, in order to transform marriages that, where the four horsemen are present, often the first two get caught in this loop of criticism, defense, criticism, defense, and then can slip into contempt and stonewalling. In order to see that marriage move forward, the couple needs to change the way they have conflict. Instead of simply criticizing, they need to learn to complain well, to use gentler words and to focus on what is frustrating them rather than simply tearing down the other person because they always do that. Or you're such a... You fill in the blank. Rather than reacting defensively, the person we each need to learn to listen to, the, to each other, to listen well, to try to understand what's really going on so that we can respond so that we can submit to the other person. And when things slip into contempt, when contempt is present, when people are just disgusted at the other person, it's the death knell to any marriage. And it can't have a place. If your marriage has slipped into contempt, you need help, and you need it quick. Where contempt is present, the end lurks. And then, of course, often after there's criticism and defense and criticism and defense, someone just shuts down. Gottman calls it, they're flooded. They can't respond anymore. They shut down. They sit in the couch and they just flip through the remote while it's going on in their ear. 85% of the time, that's the guy. I touched on this very briefly, only to indicate that we must have conflict, but we must have good conflict. And there are ways to do that beyond the scope of this message. But you need to hear how important it is. And if in your marriage you are not having conflict at all, You need to light some fire. You need to get something happening. You need to do something weird and get somebody mad. So you can actually start talking. Do have fun with that. And for those of us who have been suffering in conflict that is unhealthy, that has been tearing each other down, maybe you realize today it's your own words, it's coming from your own lips, that you've been globalizing the criticism and just raking on each other, if you realize that, there's, that you've been locked into patterns of, 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 of criticism and defense and maybe even slipping into contempt, if you realize that that's going on, I'm appealing to you in the name of Jesus to get help. Get a counselor. Read some books. Find your way out of that thing because God wants you to have a healthy marriage. And guess what? So do we. We want you to have a healthy marriage. And if you're locked in that kind of a negative, ugly, you know, soul-ripping conflict, Well, we want to see that change. Learning to be good fighters doesn't mean that all conflict in marriages are resolvable, though. I think this is important to hear. It's actually one of the myths of marriage is that we must resolve all of our conflicts. It may come as a great relief to you to find out, no, that's not true. In fact, lots of very healthy marriages have lots of unresolved conflict. I am relieved by that. Now, as it turns out, what you find out is when people have good conflict, there's these, they, they come to realize there's some things that aren't going to change about that person I married. For example, let's get personal. I asked Tanil the other day, what are one of those unresolved conflicts in our lives? She said, you fly by the seat of your pants. You always have. I like to have things planned out. Always have. And so we talked about that. Now, the reality is, we've known that for a while, but she brought it back to my attention, and I realized that, yeah, that's one of those areas, you know, I'm probably never going to be a super planner. And let's be honest, 
Sunil's never going to be someone who flies comfortably by the seat of her pants. But you know what's beautiful about that? We've got lots of conflict over this one. We have grown to appreciate and love each other more because of it. I do appreciate her planning. I really do. She has saved my butt so many times, I cannot even tell you how much trouble we would have been in if she hadn't been planning. But I also like to believe (laughs) that I have helped her experience some of the spontaneous joys of life because I have not planned certain things. The deal is, these unresolved conflicts can be a source of, of actually growth in your marriage. You don't have to resolve everything. How you conflict around those unresolved things can actually contribute to the health of your marriage. You can grow to understand the person more, to really understand why this is really important to them. And even though I don't think I can see my way to become that, or, but, but maybe I can offset it with this, and I can, I can be more gentle, I can be more sensitive, I can be a better husband, I can be a better wife as I understand what that is. And so even in the unresolved conflicts, we can see growth and health come to our marriages. In short, being good fighters means that we take how much Jesus loves us and how Jesus has treated us and how he's called us to treat one another in the body of Christ, but then apply it very directly to our relationships with our spouses. We take that very seriously. And out of reverence for him, we submit to one another, even as we foster good conflict. I'm going to wrap up with two actions for you to take. This is, these are direct actions related to those of us who are in marriage. This is it. How are you going to make your friendship a weekly scheduled priority this fall? We're all, you know, we all are admitting to ourselves today that the summer is almost done. Right? Everyone, summer is almost done. And now we have to think about the fall schedule, Right? Yeah, Fongs, you still got holidays left. I realize that. But when you come back to Calgary, you'll Okay, so what are you going to do this fall? Where, how are you going to schedule your friendship as a priority in your daily life? I want you to discuss that. Discuss it today. Discuss it this week. Figure out a time how to do it. Sunil and I are going to do that. We're going to talk about that because now we've got to re-engage a new fall schedule. How are we going to make sure we have time for our friendship this fall? And the second thing is, what can you do to become a better fighter? Ask. I dare you. Yeah, ask them. Ask your spouse. How can I be better at fighting with you? You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. Ask them. And then be open to perhaps ways that you could be a better fighter. It might be in the words you speak. It might be in your willingness to engage in those sore spots. It might be... Well, I don't know what it might be, but I'm sure there's a way that we can all become better fighters. Ask what it is. Maybe make that the topic of your first discussion together this week. In closing, I want to say this. God has a big vision for his world, and we've been exploring it all summer. He wants to see all things reconciled to Jesus. He's made it all possible on the cross, and he's making it real through us. And I'm amazed at how that can start right in our individual relationships, right in our friendships, right here in this church, and as we reference it today, right in your marriage. God wants to reconcile things. He wants to bring the work that Jesus did on the cross and in the church, he wants to bring it right into your home, right into your marriage. And I believe that as you experience the transforming work of Jesus in your lives, not only will you benefit, you will, but your family 
your extended family, your friends, your neighbors, all of us who love you and are part of your lives, we will all grow. We will all benefit. We will all see Jesus being lived through you as all of us explore what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amanda and her team are going to come and lead us in a closing song. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you.